0: join me in the book of first Samuel chapter number eight if you're here for the first time on a Wednesday we have been going through first Samuel about halfway through this series and I want to bring you a message that doesn't have a very encouraging title it's called shepherding stubborn souls and I'm not directing this at you I promise you it's in the Bible we're going through different parts of uh, Samuel's life and this is actually a pivotal passage in the entire history of Israel. This passage doesn't get preached a whole lot because it's not all that neon, it's, it's not all that astounding, it's, it just reads pretty, pretty plainly and straightforward. However from this moment forward in Israel's history for the next several centuries um, they would never be the same because of what happens in this passage of Scripture. And so as we go through it tonight it's, it's not necessarily um, an invigorating passage but it is kind of a sobering passage and it will give you and I plenty of opportunity to reflect on our own lives. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse number 4 the Bible says, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Now watch this, this is the king they're going to get. God is telling them ahead of time. And he says, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, and cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, and vineyards, and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain, and of your vineyards, and give it to his officers, and to his servants. He will take your male servants, and female servants, and the best of your young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles." And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Sometimes spiritual leadership looks glamorous, and I just want to go ahead and tell you, it's usually not. Um, If you're doing it well and doing it right, it's actually really, really hard but deeply rewarding work. But every single person that sticks with it Will go through a season where they recognize I'm in a season of pastoring sheep that are acting like billy goats. (laughs) They're they're stubborn, They're, they're, they're self willed, they're stiff necked. And no leader in the kingdom gets to escape from that if he's doing God's work or she's doing God's work God's way. It just, that's the way it works. Samuel was now an old man. It isn't interesting that when we study his life, he starts out as a little boy. He has this dramatic encounter with God where he's called, and then we don't hear from him again until he's in his late or mid to late 20s. And then we skip from that just in chapter 7, and now here we are, and he's already an old man. There are massive gaps that are left out of Samuel's life, but the, the testimony that we see of him is that he had an unwavering walk before the Lord. He wasn't perfect, and we're going to see some of the reason why we can say that right here in this passage. But he was steadfast. And now he's an old man, he is still ruling and judging Israel, he's still the leader. But they're entering into a season where the natives are restless. The people are not quite content with Samuel's leadership. And we're going to see the Lord do something that I want to suggest to you that He still does today, and we need to be wise about this. Sometimes God will give you what you ask in judgment to you. Sometimes the Lord will give you what you want, not as an act of kindness, but as an act of correction or judgment or discipline. And so when I see that in my Bible, I slow down in my prayer life. I think through what I am asking and seeking and knocking because sometimes when the Lord doesn't give it, sometimes it's because He doesn't want to. And yet there are times when we enter into self-willed rebellion, demanding like these are about to do, that God will acquiesce to us and say, all right, my carnal little child, if you really think you want this, I'm going to give it to you, but you will regret it. So, if it happened in Israel's life and other people throughout Scripture, we need to be wise and say, let us be careful. Let us be sobered so that the same thing doesn't befall us. So, let's look at it. We're going to talk about the desire for a lesser king. All of this is about Israel demanding a lesser king. They want a king. So, what does it look like? Where does this desire in them come from? But I'm going to note three things in the first six verses. The first is this, this desire came in their season of dissatisfaction. Notice verses 1 and 2. Part of that speaks this way. When Samuel becomes old he makes his sons judges over Israel. So Samuel has grown up, he's gotten married, he now has adult sons, and he is an old man at this point, at least according to the comments that are made about him in the Scripture. And the Bible even says that he is an old man. Now think about this, he grew up around an old man named Eli who also had two adult sons whom Eli the father brought in into ministry. So Samuel seems at least to be following or mimicking a pattern that he learned as a young boy. If you grow up in ministry, you have sons, bring your sons along with you in ministry. And so that's the context. But the people are saying, Samuel, your age is not serving you well. And they're about to tell him, and your sons aren't reflecting well on you or what we want our leaders to do. And so the people are dissatisfied and when they become dissatisfied they start wanting change. That's all of us. When we're not happy with the way things are going, when we're hitting our wall of impatience we want change. We want something to give so that we might have hope of something new happening. And that's what Israel's going to demand here. So the desire comes in a season of dissatisfaction, but it also comes in their season of decline. Look at the actual objective problem in verse three and four. Uh, Samuel's sons did not walk in the way in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now this is not opinion. This is the biblical testimony. It's interesting to me that Eli who had power and authority as the priest of Israel had two sons that for whatever reason did not follow in their father's footsteps. And they used ministry, and I can say this I believe in this audience, to gain opportunity for sexual favors. That's what Eli's sons did. Hophni and Phinehas took advantage of the women in the tabernacle when they came to offer sacrifices. Eli's sons were different. They went for the money. And we've heard it preached to us, every young minister gets a speech several times as he enters into ministry. Jeff, you need to watch out for power, women, and money. Those three things, they're preached and they need to be preached because consistently these things trip up minister after minister down through the ages. Well, Hophni and Phinehas, they fell prey to the women. Eli's sons, Joel and I forget the other one's name, they fell prey to the desire for money. And so the people knew this, their testimony was ruined, and the people said, we don't want these guys to rule over us. Let me say something to all of us who either follow leaders or who happen to be leaders. When leaders disappoint, the followers will want change. When leaders fail to lead, the followers will want change. And sometimes they don't care if it's even hasty and unwise change. They just want something to change on the landscape. And that's what's about to happen here. Some of this falls back to Samuel. Some of it falls back to Samuel and his sons. Whatever Samuel was effective in in the nation, it didn't translate well in his home. And that's another downfall of a lot of leaders. So, we come to verses 5 and 6. Yes, the desire came in a season of dissatisfaction and decline, but it resulted in a season of demanding. Listen to the uncaring, unkind words of the people to Samuel. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. That's double underlined in my Bible, like all the nations. Israel fell prey to getting so dissatisfied with what God had set up, as flawed as it was, it was still the plan of God for Samuel to judge and to lead Israel. But Israel didn't like it, and they certainly didn't want to go through another generation if Samuel's son. So, Israel, the elders have gathered together, the leaders have gathered together, representing the people, and they've said, I tell you what, we've decided. We want you, before, and Samuel wasn't even done yet, he wasn't even dead yet, he's still alive, and so they are firing him. They're saying, We want you to move on because you're old. And by the way, as much as I want to encourage young people, They often fall prey to the reality that they think, you know, you hit 40 and you're kind of irrelevant at this point. You know, they're 18, 19, and 20, and they think, you know, grandpa, that 40 year old grandpa, he needs to get out of the way. So young people, yes, they can also fall prey to this pride, but they say to Samuel, who's much older than 40, they say, uh, yeah, you're old time for you to move on and your sons we don't want to have anything to do. We've got our own idea. We've been looking at all these pagan non-covenant uncircumcised Philistines and pagans and they have a king and we really like that. We want a king too. So in an instant if we're discerning properly they're saying to Samuel the God appointed leader we would rather have a pagan style of leadership than God's preference for leadership And Samuel, we want you to resign, and we want you to appoint your own replacement. And by the way, make him a king. Uh, God was to be the unique head king and leader of Israel. That's always been his plan. It has always been the plan of God that he would be the sovereign monarch over his chosen people. And at this point in Israel's long history at this point, I mean this wasn't you know, happening a day after you know, the covenant with Abraham. This is centuries into God's covenant with His people and they are saying we just don't like your plan Lord. And they're saying it of course to Samuel. So, Just stick with me here for a minute because all of this expresses and speaks to the potential for both you and I to at various places and different points in our life look to God and say, you know what? We don't really like your plan. We don't necessarily feel it's benefiting us. It may be that we're tired of waiting. It may be that we're working hard and not finding the results. It may be that we're getting a little tired of the turn the other cheek. We need to be humble, carry your cross mindset, you know, the kingdom way. And we're saying, you know what? We want our cake and we want to eat it too. And if we have to, Lord, we'll eat it alone but we'd like to do things our way. Now, we would never say it that way, right? Because we can't get away with saying it with our lips like that. But we can go through seasons in our lives like that. And we exchange the rule of an omnipotent, good father over our lives. And we say, I think I'll start following a lesser king. And usually that king is described as self-will. We start doing what we want to do. Now, this isn't pleasant, but it could be helpful. It may just be that you and I might need to remind ourselves we're not above being warned from time to time. I mean, I need to be warned from time to time. Holy Spirit, warn me. I don't want to traffic in error or danger. I'm going to tell you, uh, we're told in Scripture, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked who can know it. And that truth didn't disappear just because you got saved. Uh, You act independently of the Lord and you can act out the desires of a depraved heart. And that's exactly what Israel was doing. And by the way it sounded like a real good idea to them. It made sense to them. All the other nations seemed to be getting along quite well with this king set up and so they wanted it. So what is God going to do? First of all what's Samuel going to do? I mean, put yourself in his little loafers for a moment and just say, what in the world would you do when you've poured your life since childhood into a group of people? There's really not anything overtly negative said about your leadership other than the issue with your grown sons who, by the way, were serving at a great distance away from Samuel, where, from where Samuel was. He may not have even been aware of the degree to, of his son's failures. But irregardless of that, Samuel is now hearing that the people that he has loved and served faithfully as under the Lord, they don't want him to lead anymore. He's old and irrelevant. They're tired of him. It's time for him to go. So, how is he going to react when he finds himself now shepherding stubborn souls? And so let's look at it. God allows their demands. Look in verse number 7. God actually allows for their demands. The Lord said to Samuel, watch this, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. There's so much I would like to say about verse number 7. First of all, I love the fact that God came in a very comforting way to Samuel who had just experienced outright rejection. And there's not a person in here that wants to sign up for the next, you know, onslaught of rejection in our lives. We've all been wounded by that. That's some of our deepest fears. I know growing up and experiencing some of that myself, it, it definitely put its mark on me. And rejection is just an awful thing to bear. And here Samuel is in what could be his twilight years, going out and, in, in a, with a great moment for the Lord in those years. And instead, they have said, we don't want you. And look at God coming in. Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. My son, in essence, It's not you they're rejecting. They're going through you, but they're actually rejecting my plan. They're actually, Samuel, rejecting me. I love the tender mercy of the Father. And it's a good reminder that the Scripture tells all of us that are trying to live godly in Christ Jesus that we're going to suffer persecution. We're going to suffer rejection. We're not going to be able to be received by everybody in this world. And so when that happens, I pray that our antenna will go up and we can hear the Lord saying the same thing to us. My child, it's not you they're rejecting at work. My child, it's not you that they're coming against in your last church. My child, it's not you that they're resisting in the family. My child, they're not rejecting you per se. They are rejecting me and my ways. But the reality is is Samuel still had to go through it. But interestingly, look at what the Lord says. The Lord does not say, Samuel, they've rejected me. You need to move 100 yards down the road because I'm about to burn them up. God does not do that. Look at what He says to Samuel. He says in verse 7, Samuel, I want you to obey them. I want you to obey them in all that they say to you because Samuel ultimately Their problem is in their heart, and it has more to do with me, Samuel, than it does to you. Samuel told the leader to bow to the will of the people when the will of the people was leading them out of the will of God. Now that's some complexity that a lot of times we don't think about in leadership. And maybe you don't think about in fellowship. Sometimes I know that We don't always agree with our leaders, whether it's in in the home or whether it's at work or especially in the church. We, We can believe that we have a way that we need to go and it's not always in line with the leaders. And sometimes God will not allow you to get what you want. But if you are bound and determined to keep pressing into it at work, keep pressing into it at home, keep pressing into it at the church... The Lord does reserve the right occasionally to give us what we're asking for even though it's not what He wants for us. And to me that just gives me pause. I don't know how you receive that. But there could be a moment in Israel I mean take this moment for for example. There might even be in the moment where Samuel says, okay I'm going to get you a king that the people say, yes! What a great victory for us! Hallelujah! He finally saw the light. And they're completely unaware that actually they're the ones in darkness. And God has allowed them to harden their heart. And so there's this issue of there's just the complexity of this where God sometimes gives people what they want even though He doesn't want it. Well, go further, verses 8 and 9. God allowed not only their demands but their derailment. Look at what He does. He gets historical with Samuel about Israel. I love the fact that I think it's Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says something to the effect of the Lord's not going to do anything except He speaks to His prophets first. Or the secret of the Lord is with the prophets. And it says in another place, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. Sometimes God will just have a conversation with people. And here He has one with Samuel. And He says in verse 8, "...according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day." Samuel, here's how, here's how I characterize it. "...forsaking me, serving other gods." And Samuel, is it any wonder they're doing it to you now? And so he says again, now then obey their voice. Uh, The leader is having a wrestling match. He senses the injustice. He knows that the people are walking away from God. He's probably processing, Samuel is, the rejection and the the hurt and just the wrongness of the situation. And so three times the Lord has to tell his servant, their leader, he has to say, you need to do this. You have to do this, Samuel. Sometimes you have to let the sheep jump the fence just to experience the terror of the wolf outside of the provided pasture. And so Samuel is being told by the Lord to allow this to happen. Now listen, there is a temptation. I think even a couple of guys that I wrote kind of postured this this passage this way. Well, they really had two options. They, they could follow God, but the lesser option that God was giving them was to appoint a king. I'm just going to blow that out of the water like a battleship. God was not giving them two options. They chose an option that was of their own creation. God was saying all throughout their history, I will be your God. He told them over and over again, you will not be like the other nations. Do you remember those times where He spoke to them through Moses over and over again? He would say, you're not going to be like them. Joshua, when you get into the land, don't be like them. He would say it over and over again because Israel was God's unique, special people, and He didn't want them to appear like the the pagans in the land. And here they are saying to the Lord through Samuel, we want to be like them and god had heard it long enough and often enough and they backed it up with their actions of rebellion and god just said sam i'll just give them what they want that's a pretty intense thing and again if you want me to explain the complexities of this it's it's above my pay grade i don't know i don't understand all of this i'm just telling you what i read i don't even know how to apply it fully to your life and to my life but i can extract these basic principles the reality is there are times and I, i know this sounds like a broken record but we need to hear this There are times where we should just really slow down when we're bound and determined that we need something to happen and God is resisting it. It might be He's resisting it because whatever we're trying to accomplish is actually not in His plan. And it takes sometimes as much much faith to say, I began in a direction that I shouldn't have gone, and so by faith I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm not going to press the issue. But a lot of us, and I would put myself in that number, our our DNA is we're a little hard-headed. We thought, well, bless God, I I started this thing. I'm going to see it through it to the end. You know, I will go down with this ship, amen? And and we just kind of, we just stick to the path even if it's the wrong one. And Israel was doing that. And so God never gave them the second option. And because of Israel's determination to go where God didn't want them to go, I'm just going to give you the big S word, they sinned. They willfully chose rebellious sin. And so God is going to acquiesce. He's going to give them what they want, but not without a holy lecture. He's going to send Samuel to give them a, okay, I'm going to give you what you want, but. So let's look at this. God allowed them no excuses. Look in verse number nine. No excuses. He said, Samuel, you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of that king. Show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So poor Samuel, he's like a little ping pong ball going back and forth between the people and God. And so Samuel goes back to the people, verse 10, tells them all the words of the Lord to those people who were asking a king from him. So here's where Samuel begins to explain to them, okay, I just talked with our God and he told me to go find you a king. But before I go find you a king, the Father wants me to tell you what kind of king you're about to get. And this is eye-opening. And this is something I want us to just kind of let seep into our hearts here tonight. The Lord is very gracious. Is He sovereign? Is He omnipotent? Is He in full control? Absolutely. If If there's one thing in the universe that is beyond God's control, then God isn't God. He is in control of everything. That means He has authority over everything. Sometimes He exercises that authority in allowing us to choose something that is not His will. And so this is what's about to happen, but He's actually going to tell them how messed up they're about to get as a nation. And by the way, if you study the history of Israel, everything I'm about to read to you happened over and over and over and over again, historically, repeatedly, and varying degrees of intensity. So go down with me in verses 11-18 through 18, and let's talk about the detriment of the lesser king. What is this going to do then? Here's what God says through Samuel, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And you're going to notice, did any of you pick up on a repeating word, a word that's repeated? It's a verb in these verses when we read it through. What was the word that the king primarily is going to do? He's going to take, 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 take. So let's look at it. Under the lesser king, Samuel says, your family will suffer. He will take your sons, he says, down in verse 13, he will take your daughters. The king that you want is going to be primarily defined by the action of taking from you. And it begins with what should be the most precious to these people is their sons and daughters. And by the way study the book, study some of uh, uh, especially First Kings, Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles and you're going to find all over the map that families in Israel suffered, parents suffered because of the evil of the human kings that were appointed over them. Under a lesser king verses 14 and 16 your fruitfulness will suffer. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards. Now for them that was speaking of of finance and sustenance. It was an agrarian society they lived off of their crops and the king would come in and he would say, oh Naboth I see your vineyard over there I love your vineyard I think I'm going to take your vineyard Naboth. Naboth did not want to give his vineyard so what happened? He took Naboth's life. And so that's a one reference in uh, the book of 2 uh, Kings, or 1 Kings, where you're going to see that the king gets to take whatever he wants, including their crops. Now, I use the word fruitfulness because it is speaking of the, the fruit of the land, but I think about you and me. When we determine that we're going to live in our loyalties to lesser kings, when we sell out the lesser authorities... When we welcome other things that are less than God, less than Jesus Christ, less than the leadership of the Holy Spirit to determine the flow of our lives, I'm going to tell you our sons and daughters suffer. Now this is not about guilt for mistakes you made in the past, this is especially for those of us that are still raising kids. When we go chasing after lesser kings we want something else to rule us, we want to be like everybody else in the land, our sons and our daughters will suffer, but so will our fruitfulness. Whereas here it's grapes and olives and things like that. I'm thinking of spiritual fruit. When I serve a lesser king, whether it's for a day, a week, or a month, or God forbid, a year, my fruitfulness is going to suffer. The fruit of the Spirit going to be limited if there at all. Fruitfulness in ministry. Listen, I, I want to tell you something just very quickly about ministry. Once you exercise a gift long enough, a skill you can actually do it humanly speaking and not necessarily do it in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Good singers can sing even if they don't have the anointing, even if they are not walking in fellowship with the Lord they can still hit the notes. And most of the time the people in the audience will never know. Discerning people know it's a good voice but no anointing. The same thing with preaching. A preacher, if he's preached enough sermons, a speaker, if she's given enough sermons, she, she or he can stand up and they can deliver the stuff and they can do it. It will sound great, but it do not necessarily bear any fruit. Why? Because if you're sold out to a lesser king, you're going to lose your fruitfulness. Amen. Folks, these are the kind of things you say, Jeff, this sounds really stringent. This is a little suffocating. Well, my friends, listen, do, do we really think that the glory of God comes easily through our lives? When your flesh resists it, or resists it, The world won't receive it. And the devil fights it. Do we really think that we can casually be fruitful and Christ honoring and glorifying? I don't think so. And especially if we've got divided loyalties. And Israel was kind of displaying that. Now verse 17 is like a death knell. Under a lesser king your freedom suffers. You will be his slaves. Think about this. They're asking for this ideal individual to rule over them. And they're thinking it's going to be good. We want him to rule over us. We want him to lead us. And Samuel says, okay, God's saying okay, but before you sign on the dotted line, he's, it's going to negatively impact your children, it's going to destroy your fruitfulness, and ultimately you're going to lose your freedom, because you, 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 you become a slave to whatever owns your loyalty. And he says, you're going to be his slaves. And they're choosing this. Verse 18, under a lesser king your faith will suffer, and in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves. Man, God is playing hardball with them. But the Lord's not going to answer you in that day. Wow. Are you depressed yet? My day. Look, Look at what the Lord says. Under a lesser king everything goes in decline, And ultimately you will awaken to the fact that you've made a bad choice, you've gone in a bad direction, but because you've gone so far from me. Now listen, I'm going to get a little dispensational with you. The Lord will not abandon nor forsake you. Okay, Christian, you hear me? He's not going to abandon or forsake you. But that same Bible says you will reap what you sow. And so what God's saying here is, you're going to wake up one day Israel. And you're going to cry out about these evil kings. And by the way, about 95% of the kings that, that the northern kingdom of, of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, about 90 to 95% of them were wicked, ungodly, horrible kings. They had a couple of good ones. Matter of fact, I think after this series on Wednesday, we're going to study the life of Josiah together for, for several weeks. And Josiah was a great king. Uh, again, another one that started as a little boy. But I digress here. The, the point I'm making is this, is that God said, You're going to wake up one day and you're really going to wish you hadn't gone down this road but you're going to be way down this road. Now what do we do with that? Certainly the Lord doesn't bring this message to us in 21st century New Testament context so that we'll feel really horrible and guilty and go home depressed about all the mistakes we've made. That's not the will of the Lord. That's certainly not my desire in sharing this. This is not so much about cutting us for our past as it is telling us, let's be circumspect about our future. Let's really think about the decisions we're making right now, because all of us are in process. All of us right now are are constantly weighing decisions. We're, We're giving our lives to something. I mean, you and I are living for something. You may be living for the next TV show, but you're living for it. Or you may be living for the glory of Jesus, you're living for Him, and you may be living something in between those two extremes. But we are all giving ourselves, our time, our energy, our faculties, our resources, we're actually living for something every day. And so what I want to do is I want to learn from a passage like this, and I want to say I can either live for King Jesus and figuring out what that means as you're doing it, that's what faith does sometimes, or I can just live for the same kings that everybody else is living for. I can live for the king of money. Because, I mean... Surely we're all convinced that living for money is wise. Because it pays off so well? Because the most wealthy people in the world are the happiest? Because money can buy you the deepest treasures of your heart? And, it, and yet we still are tempted to pursue money because, by the way, one of the reasons they wanted a king was because they thought the king would bring them security that Samuel and his sons couldn't. And so we want something to give us identity and security. So whether it's money or fame or notoriety or success or pleasure, who knows, man, the list is so long. But ultimately they're lesser kings. And so when I, when I read through a passage like this, I just hear Holy Spirit saying, Jeff, go ahead and run a diagnostic on your heart. I think every few months it's not a bad idea. Just take an inventory of your life, what you're doing. Go ahead and take a, an afternoon and just get quiet in the presence of the Lord, Bible open. Take a couple of hours and just say, Lord, reveal my heart to me. It belongs to you. Just show me what you see. And friends, be prepared to be a little convicted. I don't think anybody can spend a couple of hours in the presence of a holy God and not come away saying, yeah, I I, I need you to help me with this area of my life. And hallelujah, he's not there to scold you or condemn you. He's there to help you. Y'all following me? Okay. I I know this is a little heavy, but... um, Let's, let's, let's go down to verses 19 through 22. So I actually think the people still have this glimmer of hope that they can change. So what are they going to do? Samuel's laying out everything. He's giving them the fine print. Look at verse number 19. and this determination for a lesser king, you see truth rejected. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said no. I mean, he couldn't have been more clear it's very interesting that God tells Samuel three times to obey their voice. You get down in verse number 19, and they won't obey Samuel's. And Samuel's the guy who's actually trying to do the right thing, and they just said, no. Stubborn sheep. Stubborn sheep. Not every time does the leader see the right thing, some leaders can be wrong. This is an occasion where Samuel, who had a pretty good testimony, and a history of judging them wisely and in holiness Samuel had it right they had it wrong God let them decide are you going to obey my servant Samuel and they said no we're not going to do it so compromise was allowed verses 19 and 20 compromise was allowed they said no there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations wow at least they were honest They weren't playing around. They were like, yeah, we're kind of sick of doing it this way. (laughs) We want to be like the Ammonites. We love the Ammonites. Man, we have been waiting for the opportunity to really emulate the Girgashites and the Mennonites, or not the Mennonites, the Midianites. Not the Mennonites. The (laughs) Mennonites are great people. The Midianites and, and, you know, that was horrible. and, And so they said, just let us be like the world. What's the big deal, Brother Sammy? Let us be like the world. Unfortunately, that's still a a frequent cry among people that name the name of Jesus Christ. Hey, you're too over the top, man. Loosen up. Just let us be like the world. And unfortunately, I think in this day and age, because it is the predominant cry of at least American people, christian dumb i won't say christianity a lot of pastors and leaders they just don't want to fight it anymore and what happens is they let the people go that way and then they just kind of join right in with them and i I know that you don't want that in your life i know i don't want it in my life but i i do want to confess that we're it's a potential for all of us if we don't guard our hearts beware ye that think you stand lest you fall that's in the Bible for a reason. Why? Because a lot of us think we can never fall. We're like Peter. Oh Lord, these losers, they're gonna, they're gonna, they may run and forsake you, these guys, but not me. And Jesus had to set Peter straight. He said, Peter, you're going to do it before tomorrow morning. So you get down to verse number 20 and you see that they had believed some lies. Look at this. Uh, this, is, uh, this is telling. They said, we want to be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. <laughs> the first king, Saul, who we're gonna be introduced to in a couple of weeks, colossally failed in that. Say, Jeff, what are you talking about? We want a king that'll judge and go out before us and fight our battles. What was Saul doing when Goliath was in the valley? What was he doing? He was cowering, thank you, Carol, cowering in his tent. He wasn't on the battlefield little scrawny teenage guy from the youth group named David comes up bringing some cheese to his brothers and Saul's like this kid wants to fight okay yeah here take my armor you you go out there and fight what a king but it's the king they chose that's the kind of leader that they got and it was completely different from the kind of leader that they thought they would get but they didn't listen to the Lord and they acted in stubborn self will. And it's amazing to me when we convince ourselves that what we want is right and that want grows larger and larger and larger, we glamorize the reality. We say, Yeah, I mean, how can we go wrong? Our king is going to lead us in a battle, our king's going to take care of us. This plan that I've got is going to make it happen. This is going to bring me satisfaction. This is going to make me happy. This will make me strong. This will make me secure. And we preach ourselves deeply into a lie. And then when we get the real deal, we're like, God, why'd you let this happen? And we blame God sometimes for it. And so they were committed to their lie, and at this point, God's not even fighting them on it. Have you ever heard the phrase, "When, when, when the heart gets hardened? And who was was the main character in the Old Testament that's the example of what happens in the process of a heart getting hardened? Do you remember? Remember Pharaoh? Let me ask you a question. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? And Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But I promise you this, if Pharaoh had humbled his heart, God would not have hardened his heart. But Pharaoh began the process of hardening his heart against the plan of God and God said, would you like some help with that? You want to harden it? I'm going to help you out. That is a terrifying thought. Romans chapter 1. When we come to that place as a people. And that whole passage in Romans 1 is spoken over a group of people, not just individuals, but a group of people. It's the hardened heart of depraved humanity when we get to the point in the human race where we have so hardened our own hearts about God, or toward God, that God God says in omniscient judgment, you have crossed a point of no return. You started the hardening, I'll finish it. And there's no hope for a person like that. You say, well, Jeff, who are those people? Well, we don't know. We're taking the gospel to everybody. I'm going to tell you, if you ever get concerned, oh, no, is that me? If you're concerned about it, it's not you. Because if you're worried that you've committed that and you sense that grief, hardened-hearted people don't care. People that have so hardened their heart to the point of reprobation, they don't care that they've done it. They're not interested in it. And so, don't leave here saying, Oh, no, I've committed the unpardonable sin. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. But what we're saying is that there are people, there are generations that invite the judgment of God by saying, and good night, I feel like Old Testament prophet fire in my bones tonight. I am not convinced that America is not perilously close to this. I am not convinced. I, you will not hear me say no, that, that's not happening or that would never happen. Listen, I believe the power of God can break every chain. I believe that there is hope for revival. I'm praying for restoration and repentance in this nation. But if we continue to harden our hearts against God we are not going to be the exception to the rule. God didn't spare His own covenant people Israel from that. God did not give Israel a free pass in whom he had, with whom He had covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. We have no covenant with God in America. God didn't make a a covenant with America. And if we don't repent, we could experience the same thing that Israel is experiencing here. So, verses 21 and 22, and we're done. Self is enthroned. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he went and repeated them in the ears of the Lord. What a lousy job. I mean, that's just a lousy ministry right there. The end of his ministry. He's got to give the bad news to the people, and then he's got to bring the, the bad news back to God. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. That's it. And they would never be the same. They would never be the same. They craved a king, and the succession of kings they got led them further and further away from God with the exception of a few. But ultimately, their kings led them into pagan idolatry which ultimately brought full judgment from God and the captivities came upon the north and then the south. And I'm going to tell you something. The temple was destroyed. Yes, we know that Herod built another temple, but ultimately because of Pharisaic Judaism and their abandonment of God for the pursuit of dead tradition, God judged them again. And here we are today. I'm going to tell you, there's no king in Israel anymore. THERE IS NO KING IN ISRAEL ANYMORE EXCEPT THE KING ABOVE EVERY KING, THE LORD ABOVE EVERY LORD. YOU NEED TO REMEMBER THIS, JOHN 18, A BLOODY JESUS STOOD BEFORE PILATE, AND PILATE SAID, ARE YOU A KING? AND JESUS SAID THIS, I'M NOT LIKE THE WORLD'S KING. MY KINGDOM IS NOT OF THIS WORLD. IF IT WAS, MY SERVANTS WOULD BE FIGHTING. But I am, in essence he said this, I am a king as you say. He was a sacrificial king. Not who took, but who gave. Not like the kings that God promised to Israel. The king above every king was given to them and they rejected him. And he was nailed to a cross. And God took that catastrophic ultimate pinnacle moment of man's failure where they rejected the greatest king, the king of the universe. And God took even that horrible action, and as the blood flowed from the king's veins, the atonement was made for the very sins that God's seeking to bring us out of today. So, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you we not only have a good, good father, we have a great, great king. He is an awesome, glorious, merciful, kind king, and he's coming again. He is going to split the sky. He, every eye is going to behold Him. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess. He is our life. He is the one that we want to reign over us. Yes, the world offers you a lot of lesser kings. And what God is saying is, don't give them a second thought. Keep following the king who pledged himself to you and to whom you've pledged your soul. You'll never regret it. You will be tested on it every day. Let's learn from Israel's failure Let's not reject the one that the Lord has appointed over us. Let's keep following him until the end of the age.